The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Brad. Well, one of my favorite things about traveling uh, is when I run into someone who's wearing a red Nebraska hat. Have you ever had this experience? When you're in a completely strange and foreign place and you run into someone and, and you see something familiar or some one familiar. Now, I'm not saying that when, when this happens, I, I, I know the person. Um, they aren't familiar in that I've, I've met them before. But, but when I see someone wearing that red hat with the white N, I, uh, I, can, I can make some assumptions that, that I actually know a few things about him or about her. And what's more, I, I can make a fairly safe assumption that this person and I have a few things in common. For example, it's very likely this person knows where Grand Island is and that it's completely landlocked, not an island at all, in fact. I can be fairly certain that we have a shared passion for Huskers athletics and that we have shared memories as well. We might both know exactly where we were that day when Eric Crouch made the catch. We know names like Rozier, Johnny the Jet, Frazier, Beringer, and Crouch. I also know that this person is probably fairly long-suffering. Tends to be uh, prone to being overly optimistic in the off-season, right? Celebrates that off-season national championship that we win year after year after year. This person probably knows what Rule 8 is. Likely has a, a special affinity for the 90s. Proud of the sellout streak, knows when it began. They carry around the weight 
of the expectations of the college football world, which has deemed us, or maybe we deemed ourselves, the greatest fans in college football. It's incredible if you think about it, isn't it? We can know a lot about a person and a lot about what a person is like simply because of a red hat and a white end. Well, today we've arrived at Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes. And, and just like you can know a lot about a person and what a person is like by knowing that they're a Husker fan, Jesus is going to tell us that, that we also should know a little bit about something, a, a, little, a little something about what a person is like simply by knowing that they're a Christian. Well, for a little bit of context, we began the book of Matthew with the birth of a king, the birth of a king named Jesus, and the proclamation, first by John the Baptist, and then by Jesus the king himself, and the proclamation was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you remember this? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we've seen in, in past weeks, this kingdom of heaven, it's, it's the manifest presence of God's reign, rule, and authority, both in heaven and on earth. And we saw that this is a kingdom not bound by borders, not bound by physical borders, and that the, the king is unlike any earthly ruler or king that the world has ever known. You see, what Matthew has been driving home thus far in his gospel account is that the kingdom is here. The, the king is here. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His reign, his rule is close. It's near. It's imminent. His kingdom, it's fast approaching. Therefore, repent and prepare the way for King Jesus, our Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn from your false gods. Give your devotion, your loyalty, your fidelity to this king. And when you do this, when we do this, when we trust in Jesus and believe his gospel, when we repent and place our faith in him, we become citizens of his kingdom. Well, that then brings us to Matthew chapter 5, which marks the beginning of, of what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps you've heard it before. Perhaps you've read it before. It's, it really is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever live. We'll actually be spending the next few months preaching through the text of this incredible sermon. Now, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, the late John Stott wrote this. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a, manifest, to a manifesto that he ever uttered for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. It portrays the repentance and the righteousness which belong to the kingdom. That is, it describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule 
of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. In other words, to, to be a Christian, to come under the reign, rule, and authority of King Jesus, to repent of your sin and self-righteousness, and to trust in him, to be a citizen of this kingdom of heaven which is at hand, to put it simply, is to be different. It's to be distinct from the world, different from the world, embodying different values than the world, living life differently than the world lives their lives, marked by a different character than the one that marks the world. And so it's, it's significant then that Jesus begins this sermon about life in the kingdom right after we read this at the end of chapter 4. Verse 24 says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds and great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. You see, Jesus is trending. And his ministry is, has gone viral. People are beginning to talk. And Jesus' fame is spreading. And he's amassed a following of, of, of crowds. Big, huge crowds. And the crowds are growing. His ministry, his movement, they're gaining momentum. And, and you might expect Jesus at this point to do everything that he can to capitalize on the momentum. Maybe play up to the crowd's a bit, to, to say what you need to say, to keep the crowds coming, and to keep them excited, and to keep them talking. But you see, the values of the, of the kingdom are very different from the values of the world. And so, we read this at the beginning of our passage in chapter 5. What, what does Jesus do with respect to the crowds? Well, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, almost as a a visual depiction of the Christian counterculture, separating himself from the crowds. He went up on a mountain and he sat down. When he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And we don't know how many from the crowd followed him. The disciples were, his disciples were surely there with him, but it was probably more than just the 12, the, the, his 12 apostles. A good chunk of the crowd may have followed him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, Matthew writes that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And so apparently the crowd or, or a, a subsection of the crowd followed him to, to listen to his teaching on the Mount. And in the, the sermon that follows, Jesus is going to make clear what it means and what it looks like to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He's going to make very clear what it looks like to come under his reign and rule as the king of the kingdom. What, what qualities, what characteristics should characterize God's kingdom people? 
What should their conduct look like? Well, we're going to begin with the first question today with the Beatitudes. Before we get to uh, what the conduct of the citizens of the kingdom should look like, we're we're going to uh, make some observations here in the Beatitudes where where Jesus tells us what, what the character of a Christian should look like. Now that Each one of the Beatitudes, we have to say this at this point, each one of these Beatitudes could become a sermon in and of itself, and we're going to attempt to do it all this morning in the context of of a single sermon. So here's how we're going to do that today. I'm going to split things up in this way. First of all, we're going to take a look at the, the characteristics that Jesus gives for citizens of the kingdom. What's, what, what characteristics should be displayed and embodied by members of the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom? Secondly, what blessings can be expected? What benefits can be expected by citizens of the kingdom? And then lastly, third, there is a cost to being citizens of the kingdom. And so we'll, we'll end there. So let's, let's focus in then on, on the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom. Uh, and, and as we do this, I want to be clear about a, about a few things uh, right away about what the Beatitudes are, are not. First of all, the Beatitudes are not a personality test for Christians. This isn't the Enneagram for kingdom people. That's not what this is. The Beatitudes don't describe eight different types of Christians. I'm a meat Christian. I'm a pure in heart Christian. What kind of Christian are you? Rather, they, they describe qualities that should characterize all Christians, much like the fruit of the Spirit. Further, they, they're related and connected to one another. And, and I think you'll see as, as you read through this passage, and I encourage you to, to read through this again and again in, in the week ahead, I think you're going to find that one kind of naturally flows into the next. It's almost as if they begin to build upon one another. For example, you won't hunger and thirst for righteousness if you don't also mourn your sin, and you won't mourn your sin if you aren't first poor in spirit, and, and so on. Secondly, these, these characteristics concern the spiritual, not merely the physical. They concern the spiritual, not just the physical. So we're, we're talking about those who are poor in spirit, not just those who are poor in physical resources. We're talking about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't, don't forget the last part of the phrase, not just those who are hungry and thirsty in search of their next meal. Thirdly, this isn't a set of qualities that only describes the character of an elite subset of super-Christians. This isn't just for church leadership or the preacher that, whose podcast you download not just for the leader of your gospel community. These these are qualities that that should describe all of us as Christians. They describe the right posture of a person living in the kingdom under the rule of our king. And then lastly, and this this one's important, I want to make sure that we don't miss this point. The Beatitudes are not requirements 
or prerequisites for entry into the kingdom. The Beatitudes are not requirements or prerequisites for entry into the kingdom. In other words, the Beatitudes don't tell us how to become a Christian. If we get this backwards, if we mess this up, you're going to walk away from this sermon full of despair. Or, if you've convinced yourself that you're killing it, maybe full of pride. And so these aren't prerequisites for entry into the kingdom. They tell us what we should look like in increasing measure as citizens of the kingdom, as Christians. And this is made very clear by the first characteristic given in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit is the acknowledgement of what one commentator, D.A. Carson, calls spiritual bankruptcy. To be poor in spirit is to be deeply convinced of one's own sinfulness before God, before a holy God. It's It's an admission of one's own inability to live up to God's perfect and holy standards. It's it's impossible for us to perfectly please him. And to be poor in spirit is to be completely and utterly wholly dependent upon God's grace and his mercy. D.A. Carson, he writes, It is not surprising then that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. At the very outset of the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that we do not have the spiritual resources to put any of the sermon's precepts into practice. And as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to feel the weight of the requirements of what Jesus is saying. And I'm I'm hoping and I'm expecting you are going to be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that I I can't possibly do this in and of myself. I can't possibly attain to this standard. We cannot fulfill God's standards ourselves. We must come to him and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, emptying ourselves of our self-righteousness, moral self-esteem, and personal vainglory. Here's the good news. Emptied of these things, we are ready for him to fill us. So church, over the next next few months, our prayer is that the Lord would help us to empty ourselves so that he could then fill us and that we would be ready to be filled. The Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount, they don't just show us how we should live as Christians. They remind us of our desperate need for a Savior. And they send us running to Jesus for grace, for forgiveness, and for right standing before God. It's it's been said that the Reformers and the Puritans used to summarize it this way. They said that the law sends us to Christ to be justified, that is to be made right before God, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. So when we're presented with the requirements of the law, they send us running to Jesus to be justified in repentance, asking for his grace and his forgiveness, which he freely gives us by faith, And then he sends us back to the law. He's going to send us back to his Sermon on the Mount, back to the Beatitudes, in order that that we can see the path towards growth and sanctification and maturing 
in Christ's likeness, which will again reveal our need for him, sending us running back to him. And it continues over and over and over again. This, in, in a sense, is, is a summary of the life of a Christian, of, of a citizen of the kingdom. And surely, surely it's true of the Beatitudes. Next we see that uh, the second char- characteristic are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. This goes hand in hand with the first. Again, we're talking about spiritual realities and characteristics here. Specifically, I think what Jesus is talking about here in mourning is he's talking about the mourning of sin, which is a place that we arrive out of our our own poverty and spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and experience true sorrow over their own personal sin and sinfulness. You see, as, as kingdom people, even as those who have receive forgiveness for our sins through Jesus. We shouldn't be flippant about sin or or presume upon the grace of God. We should mourn our sin. We should grieve our sin. And blessed are those who mourn the sinfulness and brokenness of the world. We should be quick not to judge and condemn the sinful world around us. Not to be outraged by the foolishness and the folly of the sinful world around us? Isn't that where we go first so often? I skip right over mourning and go right to outrage. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn and grieve the sinfulness and brokenness of our world. Is is there a place for righteous anger? Yes. Yes. Absolutely, but, but we ought to grieve. We ought to mourn. Citizens of the, of the kingdom should be meek. Now, we're not talking about weakness here. We're, we're talking about meekness. Blessed are the meek. Carson calls meekness a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. So the question is, do you insist on your own way? Are you the kind of person that insists on your own way, your own plans, your own interests all the time? Or do you submit to God's lordship in his way? His plans, his name, his kingdom, his glory. How about in your relationships with others? Do you approach your relationship with God? Do you approach your relationship with others with meekness? Or do you get your elbows out? Throw your proverbial weight around. Make sure that you're taking up relational space in the room, actively or passively imposing your will. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Above all else, above experience, above success, above approval, above safety and security, do you long for righteousness and the things of God? To be increasingly conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus, to, to abstain from sin, is, is this what you hunger and thirst for, what you yearn for? Blessed are the merciful. Citizens of the kingdom don't just receive mercy, 
from God, but they're to extend mercy and show compassion to others as well. Blessed are the pure in heart. You see, in, in the kingdom, the king isn't merely satisfied with his people walking around uh, with empty obedience and conformity on the outside. Jesus is he's after the hearts of his people, not just the, the blind obedience of his people. He, he's after your heart. He's after your desires. How incredible is it then to know that when we trust in Christ, he gives us a new heart. And he changes and and transforms our desires from the inside out, enabling us to to embody this this pureness of of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, promoters of peace and goodwill. You should know that the kingdom business, the family business, is reconciliation. This is is the business of of the kingdom, and and we should be about the kingdom business. We should be about the family business, working to promote peace between people and between people and God. And so the the Beatitudes, they tell us what Christians, what citizens of the kingdom of heaven under the reign and rule of Jesus should look like and should be like. They, They tell us about the distinctiveness of the people of God, that they paint a picture for us of the counterculture. And we are to embody this counterculture. We are to embody these characteristics of the kingdom. And as we do, we we don't just communicate to the world what Christians are like, that we do that. But as we embody these characteristics, brothers and sisters, we tell the world about what our God is like. As the subjects of the kingdom live in this way, embody these characteristics, as our character is shaped and conformed to look like this, we tell the world about our king. We tell the world about what our Savior is like. And so we should ask, To what extent do the Beatitudes describe your life and your character? Do they describe you? Do they describe you in increasing measure over time? And look, if if you're a Christian, simply put, they should. They should. In fact, I think the Beatitudes give us a really clear and helpful map for growing and maturing in Christ. But I suspect that we are all very aware, um, I I know I am, of of areas and ways in which I, I fall short of what we have laid out here by Jesus in the Beatitudes. You see, I don't embody these characteristics perfectly, and I'm guessing neither do you. But remember, don't despair. We, we need not despair. Why? Remember the first beatitude. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. And so if you're looking at this list and you're sitting here today and you're, you're thinking to yourself, Man, I, I fall short there and there and there and I'm not, 
I'm not sure that describes me all the time. And like that describes me some days, but not on Mondays. Go back to the beginning. Verse 3. Start there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Repent of your sin and your shortcomings and receive mercy and grace for Jesus. And with his help, by way of his spirit that he's given you to live in you and to empower this process of growth and transformation, over time you become more and more and more like this. A Christian that, that embodies these kingdom values. Well, the, the Beatitudes, they, they don't stop here. They don't just give us characteristics of citizens of the kingdom, but, but they also outline a list of corresponding benefits or blessings. That's where we get the word Beatitudes, blessings. Give us a list of corresponding blessings that we also enjoy as citizens of the kingdom. That brings us to point number two then, and uh, let's make a a, a few clarification uh, statements right away here as well. Much like the characteristics that we looked at in the first point, these aren't different blessings for different Christians. And so it's, it's not like Jesus is throwing a bunch of different blessings into a hat, asking you to close your eyes and reach in and to grab one or two. Nor are they like spiritual gifts, which we see are are kind of doled out to different people, different gifts to different people in different measure. These these are, 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 are gifts, these are blessings rather, that belong to all those who belong to Jesus by faith. These are blessings that have been secured by Jesus for all Christians. Neither are they given contingent upon how well you embody the characteristics that we just looked at. So let me be clear that the spiritual blessings of God aren't something that we can somehow make ourselves worthy of receiving. If you're poor in spirit, then I suspect you're already aware of that fact, that you're not worthy of receiving these blessings. And instead, the blessings of God are only found by trusting in Jesus who has secured them on our behalf. You see, spiritual blessing is only available to us through faith in Christ. Now, just like the characteristics laid out in the Beatitudes are illustrating spiritual conditions, so too are the blessings described here spiritual blessings. They're not worldly blessings. And so there's no promise of a worry-free, stress-free life here in the Beatitudes. And if that's what you've come for today, you're going to be disappointed, especially when we get to the last point. There's no promise of health or wealth or prosperity. There's no promise that if you faithfully embody these characteristics that you're going to win or get ahead in life. Lastly, we've said in in past weeks that the kingdom of heaven is an already not yet reality, right? When, When John the Baptist proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he meant was that the kingdom is already here on the one hand and that the kingdom is coming on the other hand. The kingdom is already here 
having been inaugurated by Jesus Christ the King. But, but the kingdom is not yet fully and finally consummated. This will happen when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And so then the blessings described here are similarly already but not yet kinds of blessings. On the one hand, if you're a Christian, then the blessings are already yours. How incredible is that? Even as you sit here today, if you belong to Jesus by faith, if you in fact are a citizen of the kingdom, all of the blessings that he outlines here that are yours, they belong to you. They've been secured for you. They're bought and paid for. And to some extent, perhaps you might even enjoy some of the benefits of said blessings. But, but you, you've not fully and finally realized and experienced, and experienced the blessings, these blessings of God in Christ. But look, the, the hope that we have in Christ is that when he returns, he will fully and finally and forevermore bless us. We will fully, finally, and forevermore experience these blessings in all their splendor. And so then, in this way, the Beatitudes fix our gaze upon this future hope of the second coming of our Savior, of, of a kingdom consummated, of, of a new heavens and a new earth, of spiritual blessings fully received and forever enjoyed. We're going to fix our eyes on the future. See, the, the Beatitudes tell us about what we as God's kingdom people should be like, but they also tell us about what we can hope for. And here's what we can hope for. Jesus says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that this blessing actually bookends the Beatitudes. We see it in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just stop for a minute and, and think about the significance of this single statement. In light of everything that we've said thus far, everything that we've studied and heard thus far in Matthew's gospel, Jesus who began his public ministry with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, now promises the blessing of this very kingdom to his people. This is the inheritance of his people. But he doesn't stop there. To those who mourn, who mourn their own sin, the brokenness and fallenness and distortedness of the world, those, and those who suffer because of it. To these, he promises comfort. Two pillars. One day, all of our mourning and all of our sadness will be turned into gladness. And we will forever be comforted by the God of all comfort as we enjoy our inheritance of the kingdom. And the meek, those who humbly submit to the authority of Christ and who put the good and interests of others ahead of their own, they will inherit the earth. Those who refuse to take it by, those who refuse to take it by force, 
will inherit the earth. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who yearn and long for righteousness, they will be satisfied as the good work that he began in each one of us will be brought to the point of completion. Can you imagine that day when our hunger and thirst for righteousness will be gone? Can you imagine the day when we'll no longer have to pray the prayer to God, dear Lord, please take this sin, please take this temptation away from me? Can you imagine never again having to pray that prayer? Having never to ask the Lord again for the strength to stand up under temptation. And the merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart, those who love God and the things of God, not just in word and deed, but in the very depths of their soul, they shall see God and their faith will become sight. And the peacemakers shall become sons of God. Peacemakers who, who take on the family business of reconciliation. They'll be called sons of God as they're recognized by their likeness to the Father. So two pillars. If, if you're sitting here today and, and, and you're a Christian, if you've repented and trusted Jesus, then these benefits, these blessings, they're yours. They're, they're already yours. They've been secured on your behalf. And now you have the sure hope that one day you will fully and finally and forevermore experience these blessings. And so we, we fix our eyes on Jesus, our, our eternal hope. And we anticipate the blessings that we will one day enjoy in full. Because, as Jesus makes clear in our passage, while citizens of his kingdom can expect to receive blessing from God, they cannot expect to receive blessing from the world. And right now, we are very much living in the world, aren't we? And so in the world, there, there's a cost associated with being citizens of the kingdom. And that, that brings us to our, our final beatitude, which I've skipped over up to this point. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who, persecute, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If this is your first time reading the Beatitudes, this last one might come as a bit of a surprise. Remember, it was in response to the crowds that Jesus went up on the mountain and began to preach this sermon. And as it turns out, the way of the kingdom isn't the way of the crowd. You see, the values of the kingdom don't match the values of the world. And that means that being the kind of Christian that embodies these characteristics laid out in the Beatitudes, it won't earn you the favor of the crowds. In fact, Jesus warns us, it may well earn you their hatred. Because the Beatitudes, they describe the kind of person whose loyalty and allegiance belongs not to the world, but to Jesus. 
They describe the kind of person who submits not to the world's authority, but to Jesus' authority. They describe the kind of person who sets their hope not on worldly blessings and the things of the world, but on the hope that's theirs in Jesus and the the spiritual blessings that he has secured for us. And they describe the kind of person who, who toils not for the approval of the world, but who rests in their approval before God in Christ. And the Beatitudes, they describe the kind of person who, as a fisher of men, joins John the Baptist and Jesus in their proclamation. Remember the proclamation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We just saw Jesus invite his disciples to be fishers of men. And and now we take up this same message, this same proclamation, repent and trust in Jesus for the kingdom is at hand. And I'll promise you that if you do this, the world will not thank you for proclaiming this message. The world will not thank you for proclaiming this message. And Jesus, he he drives home this point. When we get to verse 11, he actually intensifies verse 10 and what he wrote in verse 10. Notice that verse 10 is written in the third person. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now in verse 11, he is switched to the second person. He's talking directly to his disciples now. And he says, blessed are you. When, not if, but when others revile you and persecute you for and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Talk about Jesus as as a great teacher and a great example to follow all you want, and the crowds will thank you. A wise teacher. Talk about Jesus in that way, and the and the crowds, they will thank you. They may even amen you, but call people to repentance and to trust in Jesus and to submit to his authoritative reign and rule, and they will not. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's almost as if Jesus says, says this, take heart, Christian, when you're persecuted. Take heart, and first of all, look, look backwards. You're in good company, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And, and what did the prophets do but call God's people to repentance and, and to reorient their lives around God's law, reign, and rule? And they were persecuted for it. And we'll see later in Matthew's gospel that John the Baptist will be persecuted for his proclamation as well. And ultimately, he will be killed. And and of course, we know what lies in store for Jesus also, don't we? And so take heart, Christian, and and, and look backwards. You're, You're in good company. But Jesus also tells us to take heart when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on his account, he says, take heart and look forward. 
Take heart and look forward, for great is your reward in heaven. The blessing of God awaits you. And no one and nothing can take those blessings from you. The kingdom of heaven, brothers and sisters, is yours. Present reality. See, in the kingdom of heaven, even persecution comes with blessing. Though the world may curse you, so our heavenly Father will bless you. And so this message, repent and trust in Jesus. Look, we, 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 Pastor Todd read this in, in, our, uh, in our liturgy today. It's, it's foolishness to a world that is perishing. The gospel is foolishness. The cross, it's, it's folly. But we know that this message, this message that the world hates, this message that the world thinks is, is foolishness, we know that this message is, it's our only hope. It's our only hope. We, we know that we don't always display these qualities. We, we don't display these qualities perfectly. We don't embody the characteristics laid out in the Beatitudes. We're, we're, we're hypocrites sometimes. We don't always deserve the blessings that are promised to us in Christ. But that's when we remember what the angel told Joseph at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Speaking about Mary, the angel says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we don't embody these characteristics perfectly. But by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, we will embody these characteristics in increasing measure as we walk humbly in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, our great Savior and King. Because this is, this is what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. This is what it looks like. And, and be encouraged, two pillars. Because just as we can be sure that he has secured the favor and already not yet blessings of God on our behalf, we can also be sure that Jesus will work in us to make us look more and more and more like this. And that one day, he will bring this work to a beautiful completion. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, we uh, come before you now and um, come before you as, as your kingdom people. And Lord, we, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would en enable us Lord, to, to put these characteristics on display in and through our lives. Lord, would, would you help us to look like kingdom people would you help us to, to paint an accurate picture, not just of what Christians are like, but, but what you are like? Lord, help us to bring our lives, our very hearts, under the authority, the reign, and the rule of Jesus, our Lord and King. 
And Lord, we, we, we thank you for Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And we, we, we don't come before you <laughs> filled with self-righteousness now. But Lord, I, I pray that we would come before you poor in spirit, acknowledging that we can only do this with his help, with his grace and forgiveness. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.